0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 4 and let us again unite together in prayer. Father, thank you that we have this privilege. Help us that we would yield ourselves to you and worship you in spirit and in truth for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A number of years ago, uh, we took the teens to a winter retreat called a snow camp. It was wet and warm and therefore it was a mud camp. Numerous times throughout our few days there, the church van got stuck, because if you think about this, if you're going up a hill in thick mud in a heavy vehicle, you don't make much progress. Oftentimes the wheels will just spin, and you're not going anywhere. Sometimes, folks, we can think that we're in that kind of a situation from a ministerial standpoint where we're, we're headed uphill in a heavy vehicle in thick mud. Things are happening, but it just seems to be spraying mud and the, the van's not going anywhere. Ministry can feel like this. Cornerstone has been around for 80 years years 80 years we celebrate that the church has never been large the church has never been the most highly acclaimed church of the state we can feel can feel like there's not much progress being made when we think humanly jesus however has some words of encouragement for this church and any church of any size that holds Christ up, that holds the gospel forth, Jesus has some encouraging words. These words will tell us why this church has been here for 80 years, even though at one point it dwindled down to the size of about five faithful people. It will give us some encouragement, folks, that if Jesus... Doesn't come back anytime soon, this church will be around another 80 years. These words that we will consider this morning encourage us that we are involved in the greatest endeavor that human history offers. We are involved in the greatest endeavor that human history offers. Before we read our text, I want to think just for a few minutes of the number of lives that have been impacted through this ministry over an 80-year period of time. There were those who started this work. There are those who were saved under this ministry. There are those who have been trained in gospel ministry in this work and have gone on to preach the gospel elsewhere. There are those who have never stepped into this building, who have been impacted by the messengers of this work, sometimes even by the very messages of this church through tapes or CDs or DVDs or the radio or television or internet, sometimes through the message archives. These messages reach really the four corners of the globe and it's been going on for just less than a century. If you think about the rippling effect, of a life that's been impacted by the gospel and brings the gospel elsewhere, and they start making ripples themselves. And those ripples, you know what they do? They make ripples. And those ripples, what do they do? They make ripples. It really is, it's not possible for us to know the scope of the impact of this ministry. I don't think we're going to know in heaven either, folks. Because the church is not about Cornerstone. The church is about Jesus Christ, the rock and Cornerstone of Cornerstone. But I can tell you, with the 80 years of proclaiming the gospel, The count of souls who have been impacted by this ministry is innumerable for us. The message that we have preached, that I understand to have been preached before, that I understand the message is being preached now, and that I understand the message will be preached into the future, the message is about Christ and Him crucified. That's the message. That is a saving message. That is a life-giving message because it's a proclamation of Jesus himself who is a Savior. He is the Savior. Talk about a labor that is not in vain. We're involved in something that is not empty. Are we spinning our wheels? The text we have before us will answer that question, I trust, in a, a helpful way. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, Then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Two parables, each helps us answer the question of this message's title, which is, Are We Spinning Our Wheels? What do we learn from the farmer of the first parable? It's very simple, we'll move through it quickly. The first item of his agenda is to prepare the ground and to set, scatter the seed. This is what he does. He doesn't just scatter the seed. He takes time to prepare the ground, so he goes out and he, he's cultivating. And then, once the ground is ready, all the things are cleared, the sticks are removed, the weeds are, are taken up, uh, the, the 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 rocks are removed from the soil. He's prepared the ground. He lays out the seed. And you know what he does after that? He goes to sleep. He's not anxious. He's not saying, Oh, what can I do now to make this grow? What shall I do to, to make this seed blossom? He goes to sleep. Anxiety is not crippling him. What else does he do? Number three, he rises by day. He goes and does some more work. He's not done. He works some more. He prepares some more ground and he lays out some more seed. He's working. This is what he does. He keeps working. You know what else he does? He marvels at the growth of the seed. He doesn't, he doesn't take the process for granted. The seed sprouts and grows and he knows not how. Like How does this go on? Like, can he make the, the blade come out? Can he make the ear come forth? Can he make the full grain come out of the ear? No. He says, I don't know how all this works. It does it by itself. I don't know how this works. He's amazed. As we apply this to gospel ministry, we preach the gospel day in and day out, week in and week out. We don't just preach the gospel here in the building. We we go from this building. And what do we do? We preach the gospel. Oh, on the street corner? Maybe. But maybe it's just to your next door neighbor. Or maybe it's to your coworker, Or maybe it's to the lady that's grabbing the fruit out of the produce section next to you. Or maybe it's the guy that's going to grab the stack of sausage out of the cooler department. Where are we, where are we preaching this gospel? Wherever we go. Folks, many times we're just doing it in our homes, right? We're instilling it in one another, husbands and wives to each other, moms and dads to our children. We're we're preaching the gospel wherever we go, every day. And we are amazed every time someone trusts Christ because we can't make it happen. There is no program under heaven that produces the salvation of souls. It's not a television program, and it's not an evangelistic program. They do not save people. Who does? God. Every time. It's a miracle. Every time someone trusts Christ. It's not because of someone's it's not because of their ingenious presentation. It is always always a work of God. The farmer knows the things that are out of his control are out of his control. They're in the hands of God. And he marvels at the growth of the seed. Number five, another element we learn from the farmer is he enjoys the harvest. Look at verse 29. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Question, who made the seed sprout? Who made the seed? Who made the seed? The sprout grow. Oh. Who made the grown sprouted seed come to full maturity? God. And <clears throat> Jesus makes this clear at the beginning of verse 28. The earth produces by itself. The word there is automatos. What does that, what does that word mean, you think? Automatically. The earth produces automatically. The kingdom of God spreads automatically. The, the growth of gospel seeds takes place automatically. It takes place outside of our control. It takes place only under the auspices of God. So with that in mind, I want to look at a couple of passages as we think about enjoying the harvest that we can't produce. Take a look at First. Corinthians chapter 3, it's a familiar passage. I, tr- I, I, I promise you that this text that we're considering for just a few more minutes, maybe 20 or so, 25, somewhere in that vicinity. Don't hold me to that. I didn't get to preach last week. I promise you that this will encourage you as you consider the truthfulness of God's Word. Trust His faithfulness to do His work. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. He's talking about the contention among them. He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are they not being merely human? Who then is Apollos? Who is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord, what's it say? What? Who, Who did this assignment? Not Paul, not Apollos. The Lord assigned to each. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered. What's next? But God gave the growth. The the laborer just enjoys the harvest. Look at at what God has done. We, We prepare, we spread, we go to bed, we wake up, we marvel at what God is doing, and we say, Look at what he's done. Look a little further, please, at John chapter 3. This great text of Scripture. We're all familiar with Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or... Where it goes, so it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. You can't control it. You can't bottle it and say, okay, if I preach the same message that seven people were saved during, if I preach it again, of course, seven more will be saved. It doesn't work that way. You don't save anyone. There's only one person that saves. It's God. Here he attributes it to the Spirit himself who gives life. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead. In your trespasses and sins. All the way till you get to the 8th of verse 4, and it says, But God, who was rich in mercy because of his rich, uh, great love with which he loved us, for by grace you've been saved. It is a work of God. Take a look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, this discourse on the bread of life, that Jesus is the bread of life, ultimately telling us that we are only satisfied when we We are participants in Him. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 32, look at what Jesus says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of heaven is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread Always, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If we pause right there, if Jesus' discourse ended right here, we would be encouraged. Wouldn't you be encouraged if it ended right there? I would be encouraged if it ended right there. Everyone is called to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he continues. And because he continues, we are not only encouraged, listen carefully, we are empowered. We are empowered to a lack of anxiety. We are empowered to never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think or to think more lowly of ourselves than we ought to think. Listen to the rest of this short section. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose what? What did he say? Nothing Nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. What is he saying here? Well, look at the beginning of verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have everlasting life or eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We are involved in a work that cannot fail. Cannot fail. Why? It's according to the will of the Father. And Jesus has come to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that all that he has given to the Son will come to him and will never be cast out. Jesus said, everyone that God has given to me will come to me and I'll raise them up in the last day. We're involved in a work that absolutely cannot fail. God will raise up everyone whom he has granted the Son. Jesus will lose none. That's what he tells us in the parable of the farmer. What's he saying? He says, okay, here's the, the farmer. He goes out and he plants the seed and then he goes to bed. And he wakes up at the daytime and he thinks, wow, something's going on there. That's pretty cool. The ground is producing of itself. And then you know what happens? Pretty soon a harvest comes and he cuts into it and says, this is what the Lord has done. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom folks. The kingdom will not be thwarted, not by X party in the United States and not by Y party. In the United States, not by the, the Z or the, the double A or the, the triple B. No, none of the parties will ever stop the kingdom of God from coming. The kingdom of God is at work in our midst. We don't know where it's all at and, and when it's full blossom will come. But we know this. It's the work of God and it will come to pass. And that's what we're involved in. Every day we're involved in kingdom work. It cannot fail because it's according to the will of God himself. And and the God that I know, did you know that he is almighty? So what he wills comes to pass. That's what almighty means. Did you know that? I mean, almighty means he can do whatever he wants. Regardless of whether we question his motives and his thoughts and his processes or anything else, the Almighty always does what He wants. We're involved in a work that cannot fail. Certainly, we see this passage and we should be encouraged. So it leads us to another concept as we head back to Mark chapter 4. How significant are we? We're a small church, involved in ministry for 80 years. Okay, it's part of a of a work that that will come to pass. The church, folks, is not about one local expression of Christ's body. It's not about one local expression. That'd be a, a one local church, one local expression of God's body. It's not about that. It's much larger. It's about something much fuller. It's a real manifestation of God's ultimate purpose and plan. And that's what we see here in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. Look there again, please. It says, And He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable should we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is grown, excuse me, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large shoots or branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. While we're surrounded by contrary forces, we are part of something great and guaranteed. He uses this simple illustration. It's what a parable is. Mustard seeds. Now, of, of that, in that time, in that region, the smallest of their seeds was a mustard seed. So the mustard seed is the smallest of those commonly sown in Israel at the time. In order to make up one gram, approximately 725 to 726 seeds, one gram is equal to one twenty-eighth of an ounce. This is, that's, a, that's small. And when I was thinking about this, I remember a time that Amy and I, we had it's since been removed from us, but we had put together a, um, a garden bed back here before our neighbors told us to take it off of their, the property that's not theirs. And we, we had it all, I put the, 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 the soil in there, and, and we had some lettuce and some peppers and some other stuff in there. But we p- planted the carrot seeds. Have you ever planted carrot seeds on a windy day? It feels a little futile because carrot seeds are, they're kind of like mustard seeds. They're so small and light. So here we were trying to put these, these carrot seeds in, and the, the wind's blowing and, and I'm hoping that some of them make it in and then we put the, the plastic tarp over it so that they can actually seat themselves in the soil so we might have some carrots. We ended up having a few, I don't remember. There weren't that many. So I'm thinking that most of those carrots are down the hill somewhere, probably rotten by now. Nonetheless, small little seeds, insignificant, but what these small little seeds turn into is not insignificant. A mustard bush is probably the best way to call it, a garden plant, as he says it's larger than any of the garden plants, he says that in verse 32, greater than all the herbs they can grow up to 3 feet wide and up to 10 to 12 feet tall. They're covered with yellow flowers. That mustard can be used to flavor meat and vegetables, whether you need to know that or not. I don't think there's not going to be a quiz on that later. Um, it's, and it's a favorite food of birds. Why is he talking about this? Well, I th- there's something to this illustration. Something small to something big. Well, a mustard plant, that's not that big. Is it? But if you tie the imagery together, you start to understand something that Jesus is trying to bring, bring forth. And it's very helpful to us because, again, you know, we live in, in the world and you've lived there as long as you've been alive, right? <laughs> and you get a little battle weary of the constancy of intolerance toward biblical Christianity. It, it can get wearying. Everywhere you look, on Facebook, in sports articles, like you got people putting, get going down on the knee during the Pledge of Allegiance and it gets less problem um, press than Tim Tebow kneeling after he scores a touchdown. Because, listen, if you're going to talk about Jesus, we've got real problems. You're going to say, I won't stand for the flag because there's injustice in the world. That's fine. Whatever, I'm, I'm not trying to politicize our conversation. I'm just saying that we were, wherever you look, wherever you look, there's just an affront against biblical Christianity, particularly with all the gender stuff that has gone on over the last period of time, all this stuff with, with marital ch- changes to people's definitions and all of this. Christianity is looked down on, and we can think, man, we just like, we're, we're outnumbered. Little seeds. Always remember this when you feel outnumbered. Remember this, we're not against we're not against the world. We're not even against those that, that spout foolishness out of their mouths. We're for them. We want them to know the only one who will ever save them. The things that they propose, they don't satisfy. We keep proposing to them Jesus. We're not against anybody, really. I'm not fighting against anybody. And this is what, what Paul said. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That, that's where the fight is. We're not fighting with people. We're just offering them hope, offering them truth of Jesus. But we're, we're surrounded by it. We're inundated with it. And, and it seems like we're so small and insignificant compared to this monster that is the world system. And Jesus says, yeah, that's the way that the... That's the way that the kingdom is. It's like sowing a mustard seed. But, but it turns into something. And it turns into something that, that accomplishes something. He says it, it grows out these branches. And the birds of the air nest under those branches. Well, that's interesting. Because in a number of Old Testament passages, we're given some similar imagery. And what is being communicated in those texts? Well, I want for us to consider it for a moment. Take a look at Daniel 4. Daniel chapter 4. While you're turning to Daniel chapter 4, I just want to let you know that this imagery is also used in Ezekiel 17 and in Ezekiel 31. The imagery is used to picture that this Branch is giving nourishment and protection to those that are under its shade. So we've got this imagery in, in Jesus' parable of a, a mustard seed, and it grows into a large mustard plant. It seems still insignificant, but he puts some body to his illustration by saying the branches shoot out and the birds come under and they, they're nourished by it and they're protected by it. Look at Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. Now, this is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. It says in verse 10 The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens live in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So we're starting to see a little bit more what's being said by Jesus' parable, I believe. Look at verses 19 and following. Daniel 4:19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Now, we're not going to read the rest of it because it gets gets troubling for poor Nebuchadnezzar. The illustration, what's being communicated is, is that Nebuchadnezzar is this tree and he's pictured as a tree that gives this, these great branches. And the, the whole earth sees it, that's how significant it is, and they're nourished and protected by it. This is the illustration that's being used by this, this tree. Now look over at Daniel chapter 2. This is Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar again. This is earlier in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream before that dream we just spoke of that had the growing tree that shaded and fed others. In Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31, he says, "'You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. "'This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, "'and its appearance was frightening. "'The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver.' its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its, the, its feet of iron and clay and broke them down to pieces. We're going to stop there just for a second. Now, just as a, a little reminder, in case you're not remembering what happened in Daniel's day, Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he was troubled by it, and he was kind of on to the wise men, the people that were interpreting stuff for him and telling him stuff. So what he said was, unless you tell me, not just the interpretation of the dream, but the dream itself, all of the sorcerers of the land will be put to death. This caused no small disturbance among the sorcerers of the land. They didn't know what to do with themselves until God revealed to Daniel, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. And so Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream had to do with this big giant statue. It talks about a gold head and a, a silver chest, and then the, the um, bronze midsection, and then the iron, and then the iron and clay down below. And we're talking about this, this prominence of the nations. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar was that head of gold. One of the things that we learn about this is that uh, in each successive um, dynasty, there's just kind of a, a spillover. They kind of make one giant statue. There's, there's spillover from one dynasty to the next. And so when you get to the last dynasty, there's vestiges of those dynasties that come before. Until you get to this next section, and he starts to tell us about something else, another dynasty that's to come. A dynasty that doesn't borrow from the cultures and norms of other dynasties. Verse 34 again. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image of the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain, listen carefully, and filled the whole earth." We're talking about something that that starts out small, say, with Jesus and His disciples, and they're sowing seeds. And you know what happened to those disciples? They they were they became superstars, right? Everyone accepted them and loved them. What happened? They were martyred. They were martyred. Oof. All right, well, what about their followers? Well, there was persecution. And guess what after that? Persecution. And persecution. And difficulty. And turmoil. And challenge. Generation after generation after generation. It's like this. This mustard seed. It's thrown in the ground and it seems so insignificant and, and then one day when it comes to its full blossom, what's going to happen is all those that have been arising against this thing all these years are going to find that it's the only place, the only place for protection, the only place for sustenance or nourishment, the only place. Look what he says in verse 44 says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to any other people or to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it, that kingdom, shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. What's the point? God's kingdom is coming. When it comes in its fullness, right now, maybe it's in our minds or in the minds of some fledgling along when it comes, it will be magnificent. It will be unique. It will be universal. It will be protective and it will be nourishing. Folks, it is coming. The kingdom of God in its fullness is coming. Are we a part of it? Are we a part of the process? We, what we do day in and day out, week in and week out, what we're doing is part of this process. Every person who comes into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ will be part of this glorious kingdom. We're part of the greatest endeavor in world history. Don't grow weary while doing good. We've been here for 80 years. If the Lord wills, we'll be here another 80 years. What should we be doing? What should we be doing? Here's the answer, folks. Continue to point people to Jesus Christ through the gospel. Three passages of scripture, they'll all be on the screen behind me, just for our meditation as we conclude. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I guess I didn't have it read out, huh? Sorry. You'll, you know that I'm reading from the scriptures. All scripture, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully to this next part. Teaching them... To observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we point people to Christ, we need to tell them what Jesus said. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we have this text of Scripture But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, other translations, witnesses to me in Jerusalem. And in all Judea, and into Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, you will be witnesses to me. As we point people to the gospel, we need to be telling them who Jesus is, who He is. And finally, in 1 Peter chapter two and verse nine, a glorious passage of Scripture, the Bible says this: "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood." holy nation, a people for His own possession, listen carefully, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us that as we go and we point people to Christ, we need to be telling them what Jesus did. We tell them what He said. We tell them who He is. We tell them what he has done. To what avail? To what avail? Are we in that rusty, white church van, heavy, headed uphill in muddy weather, stuck in the mud, just spinning the wheels? Is that what we are? I propose to you, no. I propose to you that is not what's happening. I propose to you we are that farmer that every day gets up And he prepares the soil, and he plants some seed, and he goes to bed. And he wakes up, and he does some more work, and he goes to bed. And he gets up, he does some more work, and he starts to notice, hey, look, there's some life over here. God did it. And he goes to bed, and he gets up, and he's working. and He says, ah, more is coming forth. God has done it. And he goes to bed. Until at fine, at at last, it's done. It's done. We're not there yet, folks. We don't have the sickle out, ready to chop it down, because the harvest has come. That day's coming. It's guaranteed. Well, it starts out small. Hmm, May seem insignificant. It is not. What we do matters. What we're involved in is the greatest endeavor in all the world, and its conclusion is guaranteed. Don't quit. Stick with it. And if Jesus tarries, more souls will come to faith in Christ and will rejoice in God's work. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your way is right. Your word is true, we trust you. Bring forth your fruitfulness among us for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.